brothers and sisters. Our God is referred to as the God of peace. The God of peace. I want you to think about peace just for a moment. And of course it's alternative contention. The word peace, Irene in Greek, goes back to and always kind of points back to the Hebrew word shalom. The shalom of God, which is a peace and a, not just the cessation of of angst or cessation of uh, violence or contention, but a wholeness, a fullness, right? a, a, an overall health before God and a gift that he gives. And he gives this gift, for he is the God of peace, in a world of contention. The world we live in is certainly a world of contention. Men and women and children strive they contend with one another, and they contend with one another for various reasons. For pride, to show how great I am, whether to myself, or vanity, to show how great I am to somebody else. Or oftentimes, envy. What you have makes me unhappy. And I don't want you to have it. I want to have it. And if I can't have it, I don't want you to have it either. Uh, our political system seems to be bent around this particular sin in its current instantiation. We live in a world of contention. Oftentimes it looks like crabs pulling the other crab back down into the barrel. That one's getting out. Don't let him. Does it matter if that one gets out? Not a bit. Except that he's getting out and I'm not. So we contend. We're full of envy. We're full of pride. We're full of vanity. The dominion of Jesus Christ in this world is not without contention. The dominion of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the ministry of the church in this world, is not without contention either. In fact, sometimes we see the veneer come off and the hateful, spiteful rage of the world or the devil or the flesh come against the work of the gospel, the dominion of Christ. Over against all the rage of sinners, think of Psalm 2, all the, all the great nations of the world rattling their sabers and saying, we're going to cast the yoke of Yahweh off us and his Messiah. The God of peace says, I'll send my son, and I'll take your enmity, and I'll turn it to friendship. Because God is able to do that. God is able to take those who hate him, and turn them into those who love him. Can you testify to that? Can you think in your own life that God has brought you out of darkness, out of rebellion, out of hatred to God, and made you friends with God? Made you love the Lord. Well, he is the God of peace in a world of rage and contention. And that's behind, I think, what Paul has to say right in verse 30. I'll read these, these verses 30 through 33 as we'll be considering this morning. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers. In your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So Paul here has a plea. He's pleading with the Roman Christians, again, whom he's not met. He's not been there. We just read as he's planning to go there. There are plans. We'll get to that under point three. But he's pleading with them. He has a plea. And I wanted to take a, a second and say, well, on what basis does Paul make his plea? On what basis does Paul make his plea here to the Romans? 
Look at those words. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God. In our passage here, we have prayers to God on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit, which is to say, we have a triune plea. We have Paul saying, in the name of the Trinity, in the name of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God eternally. We're not tritheists. We don't believe in three gods. God is one. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. We're as monotheistic as any Muslim. But we're not Muslims. We don't believe in just one God without persons. Because the scripture reveals to us one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here the plea for Paul's prayer. He says, I want you to pray for me. I want you to join me in prayer. And he invokes the name of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, as he calls his fellow saints, again, those he hasn't even met in Rome, to come to war with him in prayer. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mediator. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and men. He is the God-man. He is God become flesh. He is God born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. And he grew up and he lived his life faithful to God. And the world raged against him. The world contended against him. And how did that go? They put him to death. They murdered Jesus, the Son of God. But in that ploy, in Satan's ploy, in the world's ploy, in the flesh acting up against Christ, putting him to death, we find that that's the very victory that God had worked through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But it's not just through the mediator that he, he references here, and this is the plea, the basis of the plea, but also by the love of the Holy Spirit. The love of God, the Holy Spirit. Now that could be the love that God, the Holy Spirit, has for us. Or, like Paul says earlier in Romans, the love that is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit. Poured out into us. By that love the Holy Spirit has for us and works in us. Paul says, I want you to pray for me. On the basis of Christ, the mediator between God and man, and the love of the Holy Spirit... I want you to lift me up, Christians, before God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're unaware, God is a great mystery. Oftentimes people ask, you know, can you define God? It's like, well, not not really. He's God. We can put words to it. We can take the words of the Scripture and, and offer definition as the Scripture gives us definition. But God is eternal and unchanging, filling heaven and earth. Go ahead and put a definition to that if you can. You cannot. He's a great mystery. But we believe what God has revealed. That he has one God, one being, yet in three persons in relation to himself and then to us. This is a profound mystery. And the very works of God, listen, the very works of God bear that mysterious reality. Now we walk through this world as it were with blinders on all the time. We don't see the wonders. We don't see the glory that God has created. We're just used to trucking along and doing our thing. We have our own agendas. We have our own plans. And we we move through without being enamored at the great and glorious, the profound mysteries that God has even built into creation, much less into recreation and redemption. 
All his works bear his mark, and his mark is fantastic, amazing, unthinkable. He is the triune, eternal God. So as we look to the works of God, let's not forget to look with amazement, whether in creation or particularly in redemption, that our God is an amazing, incomprehensible being. Yet he has revealed himself truly through Jesus Christ in these latter days. Think about Hebrews a little bit later this afternoon. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and that is amazing. The God-man is another great mystery. How God became man to save sinful men. Our God is full of mysterious reality, and it's glorious, and we should have eyes to see it and revel in it. Not that we need to tie everything down to particular systematic statements, though we like to do that in theology. But those statements are really to help us understand so that we can marvel at God. Rejoice in the Almighty. Rejoice in the uncreated as those who are finite and created by Him. This doctrine of the Holy Trinity is also a sine qua non, which means without which there is no Christianity. It is one of the very marks of the Christian faith that God is triune. He is one God and three persons. And that's been supremely important and central from the beginning of Christianity. Marking itself off from unbelieving Judaism. Marking itself off from all other religious conceptions of God. He is one and three. One in being and three in person. Now I ask you to think about that because maybe we live in a time where, and I think everyone lives in a time where there's just God talk. People like to talk about God. God this and God that. And they have no reference to the God of the Scriptures. The God who has revealed himself in creation and in the Scriptures, who is the triune God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The incarnate Son and the Holy Spirit. One God, eternal. There is no Christianity without Trinity. Trinity is fundamental to who we are as Christians because it's fundamental to who God is, who is the God of the Christians and the God who's revealed himself in Scripture. So Paul's plea here is on the basis, as he, as he seeks prayer, as he seeks the prayer of the, the saints in Rome, he does so in the name of the Holy Trinity. And so as we think about this today, and, and uh, as I, in God's name, implore you, encourage you, admonish you to pray, I do it in the same name, the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Christians, let us learn to pray. Let us commit ourselves to the work of prayer for the ministry. Paul's plea is for what? It's, in the, it's in the, on the basis of the Holy Trinity, but what's, he, what's, what's the plea for? What's he after? He says he wants them to contend with him. He wants them to fight with him in prayer. And many, many of us know this, and I think maybe we know it in different ways. I have to confess, I'm not a particularly good prayer there are seasons in my life where I've been I've thrived in praying, and there are other ones where it's been, oh, not quite so, a little more dusty and dry in my prayer life. But prayer is work. Prayer is a struggle. And here, Paul says, prayer is a fight. And it's not just a fight inwardly. Sometimes we think that way, our distractions and, and the, the struggles we have personally in prayer. Certainly there's a spiritual fight with our, just within ourselves individually. But also in this cosmic reality where the church is doing battle against principalities and powers unseen by us. We don't see what goes on. We don't see the spiritual realities around us. But our prayers, our engagement in that spiritual warfare 
all around us and, and in us. Paul calls them to fight and contend with him. And the prayer is warfare. But he tells them to contend with God, to pray with him on his behalf. Paul says, I, I want you to pray for me. Join me in prayer. Join me in contending in prayer and fighting in prayer on my behalf. The Apostle Paul is appealing to the Romans, again, who he's not, whom he's not met. He says, I need to pray. I need your prayers, believers. Even though you don't know me and you've never met me, I want you to pray for me before God. Contend with me and fight with me in prayer before God. So they're praying for Paul. Or are they praying for him on Paul's behalf, though? Are they praying that Paul would get rich? They have enormous amounts of, of wealth. Are they praying that Paul might fly around in the Allure jet as his proper to an apostle? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Should he not fly around in a weird jet? Should he not have his own private jet? Mansions? Rolls Royces? How far do you have to go to find Christian ministers that are just like that? You don't have to go very far. Just turn on the TV and watch the Christian ministries where so much is about the worldly accolades and the, the accomplishments and the things they get. Paul wasn't into any of that. He didn't ride around in the ancient equivalent of a Rolls Royce. He wasn't into these worldly things. His interest was the ministry, and you see it all through this passage that we just read. What he wants to do, his life's committed to the service of Christ and to the church. And to building the church for the apostle, even in, in lands where it wasn't, he didn't minister before. He wants to go off and preach the gospel to those who've never even heard it. He doesn't want to spend his time building on someone else's foundation. Other people can do that. He wants to go and minister the gospel. That's his mission. God has given the Apostle Paul the mission to build the church of Jesus Christ. Not to get rich. Nothing wrong, by the way, with getting rich. I don't mean to say that. There's, riches are a blessing from God. They can be an idol just like everything else can be an idol to us. But do notice Paul. He says, I want your prayers. Battle with me in prayer on my behalf so that I can minister faithfully. That's what Paul wants. He wants their prayers so he can minister Acts 6 begins this way. Now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number, and complaint, uh, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Here's the concern with worldly issues. Worldly issues in the church, but people have to eat, and this is something going on here in the church in Jerusalem. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, congregational meeting, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve Tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men who are of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So here we have the apostles stating what the apostles, the twelve, right? The twelve saying, this is what we're after. We're after preaching. The twelve are there to minister the Word of God. That's what they're called to do. To pray and to preach the Word of God and teach it. And there's nothing wrong with waiting the tables. There's nothing wrong with serving those who need the service in the Church of Jerusalem or beyond the Church of Jerusalem. That's a diaconal work that's good. But it's not an apostolic work. They were called to do something different, just like Paul. He says, I'm not, I'm not called to build on another mountain's foundation. Other people can do that. That's great. I'm called over here to do this work of preaching the gospel to those who have never heard it before. And I want you to pray to God. In the name of the Trinity, I want you to pray for my ministry. 
when Paul instructs his follower, his protege Timothy, as to what he is to do, we read this. This is from 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is the focus of the ministry, to preach and herald and teach the word of God. And Christians, that's my ministry as well, to herald the word, to preach the word, to open the word to you, to equip you for the ministries that God has for you as well. And so there's something about discerning in our lives what ministries God has for us. We can't do everything all at once. We can't do everything throughout the course of a life. God's given each of us gifts. He's given each of us desires. And it's our job in prayer to hone those, to focus those, and in fellowship and in counsel as well. So what does God have you here to do? What has God called you to do? And you have to do that. And that applies just as much to the 80-year-old or the 90-year-old in Christ as it does to the 5-year-old. If God has you here on this earth, he has you here for his purposes. Discern them. Seek them. And fulfill them. Even if the apostles discerned their call to preach the word and pray. And they focused in on that ministry themselves. That's what Paul's plea is for. He says, pray for me. Christians who I don't even know, but whom I love and whom I'm writing this epistle. Pray for me that I may discharge the duties of my calling as an apostle. If the Apostle Paul, who is a sinner just like you and just like me, but if the Apostle Paul needs this prayer, how much more does your minister? How much more do the ministers of the gospel here in our town or in our, in our denomination, in our presbytery and so on? We need your prayers. We, we challenge you. We seek in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that you would contend in prayer with us so that we can discharge the ministry, which is for your good. You can see how we're all scratching each other's backs on this. God has the body work that way, each part supplying what the other parts need. And what we need is prayer. So contend with us in prayer for the gospel ministry. Here. The gospel ministry that goes on week by week here. Contend in prayer, Christians, with me for the gospel ministry here. Contend in prayer for the ministers in the presbytery. That God would grow and flourish and bless the Presbytery and the work that we have among the, among the churches in our region or in the Synod, the whole Bible Presbyterian Church. We have a list on our prayer sheet of missionaries and where they're at and what they're doing. Contend in prayer for them. Fight in prayer for them. I tell you, we need it. We need your prayers. And you need to give them. And God calls you to do so, again, in the name of the Trinity. So Paul asks them to pray, particularly to pray for his ministry, his labors in ministry, his labors in making Christ known. But also, a particular prayer he asks for, protection. Paul seeks protection. Back to Romans 15. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. That he might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Paul's asking here for deliverance or for rescue. 
In other words, he knows, and if we read the book of Acts, as he, as he works his way toward Jerusalem, he knows town after town. He's in, he's in for it. There's trouble ahead. Trouble ahead in Jerusalem for Paul at the hands of, and because of the work of, the unbelievers, the unfaithful in Judea. Paul seeks rescue from that situation, deliverance or preservation, that God would preserve him through those things. And he's asking the Roman brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for that deliverance, to pray for that protection as he goes into a dangerous place. Jerusalem is certainly a dangerous place. I think it always has been, generally speaking. It certainly still is. But it wasn't Paul's day, not just because there are people warring and shooting rockets in and whatever else goes on day to day, but because Paul is a minister of Jesus the Messiah, whom the Jews, who run Jerusalem, largely denied. Not only denied him, but denied him even unto death, putting him to death, persecuting the people of God after that, the Christians. And of course, Paul was among them, persecuting. That's one of the amazing things. We talk about the power of God to change a a hater of God into a lover of God. Isn't the Apostle Paul a perfect example of that? who even under the guise of loving God, right, under, the, under this false pretense of serving God, he's persecuting the church. Yet God knows how in a moment's time, Christian, in a blink of an eye, how to take a heart of stone and change it to a heart of flesh. Our God knows how to convert sinners. He knows how to meet people where they are. Now flip that around. Where are you? Is your heart hard? Toward God. Not interested in bored with God or, or just upset, mad at God because of things that by His providence have come into your life or any number of other struggles. God is able in a moment's time, in the blink of an eye, to change that in your heart. To bring you to repentance. From saying, I don't understand God, I'm mad at why you did this, to saying, I trust you God, and I don't know why you've done it, but I trust you. And I love you, and I know you love me in Christ Jesus. So we can receive that. God's able to minister. And he does that by his word. So as Paul seeks his protection, as he seeks prayer from the Roman Christians for his protection, so we can seek the protection not only of ministry, but of one another. That God would protect us from hardness of heart. And as I've been studying the book of Hebrews here recently, trying to get a hold of chapter 4, um, I'm impressed how over and over again the admonition is for believers, for the church, don't grow hard of heart. Stoke the fires. Receive from God. Because we are easily, easily, I think, burdened and hardened in heart. Except that God give lift that burden and give us softness of heart. So may he do that for you even this morning. So I know some of you struggle with burdens indeed. But it is your Heavenly Father who has decreed from all eternity that you should struggle exactly as you're struggling. Trust that same God that he would draw you out, that he would empower you and strengthen you, even to bear up under those struggles for his glory. So Paul prays for protection. If I think of one image, uh, there are a number of images from the Bible that come to mind, but the one of like, just desperation, we're all going to die, and what's God doing is in the Exodus, when the children of Israel are pressed up against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his armies are coming not to give them gifts, but to give them death. And they're stuck, and they don't know which way to go. Now, kind of put yourself in that position. Are you there? Have you resisted the blood? Do you trust the Lord in such situations? 
They needed rescue. The children of Israel pressed up against the sea. Pharaoh's armies ensuing needed rescue. And did God give them rescue? In an amazing way, at the 11th and 59th, 11th hour and 59th minute, just in time. And I'm impressed as I not only read the scripture, but as I read church history, how often that goes on. How often God waits to the last second and shows his power and his deliverance. Then his people rejoice and they say, I shouldn't have doubted. I shouldn't have doubted. This is how God operates. Christian, don't doubt your God. He knows how to protect. He knows how to give you what you need. He knows how to take you from this earth when it's time for you to go. He knows how to protect you even into eternity. But Paul's not seeking rescue from Egypt or the Egyptians ensuing. He's seeking rescue from God's own people. The Jews. The people of God. The sons of Abraham. The ones God had set apart as his very own people. Given them his word. Given them his covenants and so on as worship. But how often do we read in the scriptures that the very people of God, the ones set apart and blessed by him, are the ones in rebellion against him? Let that not be true of you, of us. That we should have the veneer, have the externals of service to God, yet in our hearts be in rebellion against him. May God protect us from that. It's not new to have God's covenant people be the ones from whom the people of God need protection. Here's an example from Acts chapter 19. When he entered the synagogue, and for three months, says Paul, he, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. Paul seeking protection from the unbelieving Jews who want him dead. Who want the way, which is the, maybe the first handle for Christians. Uh, those who follow Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So the Christians took on that name. We're part of the way. This is the way. This is the narrow path that leads to life. We're following Jesus Christ, who is the way. And here are these unbelieving Jews, after they hear the gospel, their stubborn, hard-hearted unbelief, they oppose it. They speak evil of the way. They oppose Paul. And so Paul knows he's walking back into that. He's stepping back into the fires of Jerusalem. Flip back to Romans chapter 11, just a couple pages back. We see Paul addressing the same issue here, this broader issue of God's covenant people being in rebellion against God and stubborn hardness of heart. Start reading verse 28 of chapter 11. As regards the gospel, they, that is these unbelieving Jews, are enemies for your sake. And again, for your sake, we saw that just in the passage in Acts, that that their opposition to Paul made him set up shop differently, and for two years he ministered all around Asia, Jews and Gentiles, hearing the word of God. So we see this blessing moving out to the Gentiles. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, 
so too they now have been dis- disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. We see God's, Paul's seeking protection from these unbelieving Jews, but he knows the situation. He knows that they're unbelieving. That's all part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan to open the riches of the Gospels of the Gentiles. Yet he still seeks protection. He knows the plan. He knows what's going on. Yet he seeks the protection of God through the prayers of the Romans. Now, let me just mention as far as kind of an applicational thought. I think Paul believes in the sovereignty of God. I mean, I kind of learned it from him. Right? Uh, the, the things don't happen on accident. They happen according to the will of God. And yet, he, he seeks not only pray for himself, which he clearly does. He says, join me in this you know, uh, contest of prayer, this fighting of prayer. Join me. But he seeks the Lord's protection. He knows that things will go exactly as God's decreed. He'll run out his race. He'll finish his race as God has decreed. Yet he still seeks the prayer. Some people will ask, well, if God's got everything dialed in, if God's got everything planned, why bother praying at all? And my first thought is, are you, like, alive? Are you a person? Are you a Christian? Does your heart not seek to cry out to the Lord? Of course He's got us together. He's God, but that's not our problem. Our problem is dealing with our day-to-day life and our anxieties, our, our, our fears, our own sin. Does that make you cry out to the Lord? And to seek others to cry out on your behalf as well, your brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants protection. He knows the Lord will protect him exactly as the Lord will protect him, yet he still prays. He still seeks others to pray for him. And and maybe we can sit there and make that make sense theologically and work it out. But forget all that. Just think about what it is to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in this contentious world. In a world that will not have God reign over them. And will throw off the yoke of, of Yahweh and his Messiah. This is the world we contend in. Now we just read Psalm 119. He says, I'll stand before kings. And I'll speak your wisdom without disdain. We need to learn. Not only to trust our God and appeal to him, pray to him, seek his face. But to rest in his word. To trust his word. To trust what he has communicated to us. And not be ashamed of it. Just simply be... Christians, living as Christians, and let the chips fall where they may. Covenantal rebellion is not uncommon in God's people. In fact, if it were not for the grace of God, that's all we'd ever get from God's covenant people is rebellion. It's by the mercies of God that we learn not to rebel, but to submit. Submit to Christ and submit to his word and his law and keep his commandments and rejoice in them. Now, I mentioned before that Paul wasn't seeking prayer for Learjets and such, but he was praying for his life and limb. It's not that Paul's entirely detached from this earthly world. I'm sure he enjoyed some of the beautiful and wonderful things about creation. But that's not his prayer here to seek those things. But it is his prayer here that the Romans would join him in prayer for his own protection of life and limb as he goes about the ministry. Preservation of life and limbs good. God said, you shall not murder. Therefore, preserving life and preserving our our bodies and our possessions is, is good. Yet also, I think, it can move into idolatry. 
Are you expendable for the gospel? Is Paul expendable for the gospel? He says it over and over again, particularly in his life. I'm poured out like a drink offering. Of course he's expendable. You're going to die. One day, maybe this day. Maybe the day after this day. Maybe the one after that. But someday after this, including today, you're going to die. We're all going to die. Now that has, outside of Christ, has the world in chains and bondage because of the fear of death. But in Christ Jesus, we know he's overcome death. He's come back from the dead. No, no longer ever to die again in eternal life. He says, now, in me you have eternal life. Christian, do you believe that? Or do you think death is the end of it? Do you think death has a final say? Or does Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, who has the keys of death and health, does he have the final say? So it's okay to preserve life and land. It's okay to pray that way and, and, and seek to preserve those things. But these bodies in our lives we're living are not idols. Christ Jesus will raise us up at the last day. Believe that. And then go forth. Seek to preserve your life and limb. But if it's taken from you, God says, I'll repay it to you. You don't worry. You just keep serving me. Pray for that protection. And seek God without having these wonderful gifts become idols to us. Jesus says, says this in in Mark chapter 8. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Christian, you are in Christ Jesus. You have nothing to fear. Christ has you. He says, I got you in my hand. The Father's got you in his hand. No one's strong enough to take you out of the Father's hand. Therefore, lose your life for the sake of the gospel and find it. The world, the flesh, and the devil all contend against this. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the world says, no, this is what you got. Make the best of it because after you're out of here, it's gone. The devil has all kinds of lies. Our flesh seeks the the comforts of this life and and, and, and hates discomfort. And and we don't want to deal with that. We don't want to deal with persecution. So maybe it's easier just to keep our mouth shut and skate on by easy. These are all temptations for us. But Paul says, no, I'm going into the fire. I'm going to Jerusalem. i got work to do there. Pray for me for protection as I go from the unbelief of those in Judea. And may it be so for your prayers as well. Not just for your pastor or the ministers in the area or in the presbytery, but for the congregation. That we would learn to live like this. Ready to pour ourselves out. Seeking good things, seeking prosperity and, and these happy things in life, but not hanging on to them like we have to keep them. Even our very lives. For God will raise us up in Christ Jesus. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. Therefore, this world is not our home. We pass through And we await for the new heavens and new earth, which has direct connection to this one as well. It's all connected up, but we can have open hands as we move through it. The world, the flesh, and the devil all contend against Christ and against you. Are you strong enough to contend back? Are you strong enough to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil? The answer is no. But there is one who is strong enough. He overcame Christ Jesus, or Christ Jesus overcame the devil, overcame death, and now sits at the Father's right hand, saying, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. We can rest in him, even in the midst of troubles, even in the midst of violence and persecution like Paul's walking into, and like we may very well be walking into more and more in our own culture. We can rest in Christ Jesus, who has overcome the world and has given us the faith to overcome the world as well by being connected to him. So Paul seeks, he pleads for their prayer, for his protection as he goes to continue his ministry in Jerusalem. And that's the plan. So there's prayer for protection and also prayer for the plan, what he's trying to do along the way. And this we've discussed last week and I think weeks before as well. Paul has service in mind. He has something to do. Now, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's, he's collected offerings from all around the Gentile world. He talks about uh, Achaia and, and other places, saying these Gentiles, believers, have offered, uh, offered their money to take back to Jerusalem to aid the poor, the, those who are hurting and starving in Jerusalem because of famine. Why is Paul so worried about this? Why is Paul so worried about taking this offering that he's collected around the Gentile churches and bringing it back to Jerusalem? It's because part of the peace, part of the shalom of God, is the unity and fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ. That we enjoy that together. And sometimes there are natural breaks, right? There are natural divisions, I mean, in in the church. And we see those all particularly identified in baptism. When we say there is no longer any Jew nor Greek. Well, that's a big division, folks, Jew and Greek. There is no longer any slave nor free. That's a big social economic division between the freemen and the slaves. There's no longer any male nor female. Any divisions around you know, gender or sexual things through history? You bet. These are dividing lines. These are fault lines that run through humanity. But in Christ Jesus, we are all one. We're brought under one head. We're one body, diverse in parts, to be sure but one body. And Paul's mission, Paul's work here is he's gathered those offerings from the Gentiles all around the Mediterranean to take back to Jerusalem to say, we're one body. These Gentiles who've never met you, you believing Jews in Jerusalem, they love you and they've given to you because they love you and they love the Lord Jesus Christ, the same Lord. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's part of the unity and the peace of God's people. Paul wants to demonstrate that unity and that peace in the church and bring us together, bring them together, and through the years to bring us together as well, overcoming these divisions that easily break us apart in the body of Christ. And so I ask you, what are those kind of divisions today? How do those divisions, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, being fundamental examples, how do they divide the body of Christ today? There are a lot of different ways to answer that. And all I have to do, I think, is just kind of look around the evangelical world and watch, I guess, what we call woke or this new, this new morality, which is really what it is. It's this virulent uh, morality that's being foisted upon people um, <coughs> that divides the church. Because they've given up the word of God, what God says is justice, and adopted something else for justice. Call it social, what have you. But it's not the word of God. We stand upon the word of God and what he says as Christians. And if we continue to do that, we'll find the unity in, in that message, in the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, even as Paul had here, but also in the ministry. It's not enough, I think, just to preach that unity, Christian. We pursue that unity in the church. Which means you pursue that unity. You know those kind of people in the church that bother you? 
ones that sit on the other side of the, of the aisle or something along those lines. Maybe they go to other churches even. Um, but we have enough going on right here. Right? We have to go out of our way to be united in Christ, to, to know that we're one in Christ and that we're different parts of the body, which doesn't mean we're all the same. We're all just cookie cutters one of another. That's not it. We're all different, and that's glorious. Because God's given each of us gifts that the others need. And we need the unity of the body, the peace of God in the body. So let us learn to pursue that. On purpose, even in our own body, to practice right here. And I tell you, our homes are great practice grounds for that. If you've got more than one child, uh, well, you have, a, you have some opportunity there for contention. And some opportunity to learn how to make peace. And how to live, as God calls us to live in unity and self-sacrifice and even in prayer for one another as Paul seeks from the Romans now. So Paul wants to go to Jerusalem as part of this reality of the peace of God, the God of peace and seeing that in the, in the body of Christ. But he also wants to go to Rome. We read that earlier in the, in the chapter here after verse 22. He wants to, after he drops off this, this offering in Jerusalem, he wants to go to Rome Kind of enjoy the fellowship there. Again, I think that's part of the unity and glorious fellowship of the body of Christ. And then go off on the rest of his mission. Go finish what he started. His, his, his ministry to those who have never heard the gospel. But I want you to take note of that joy and the fellowship that he anticipates as he goes to Jerusalem. He talks about there at the very end. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed. In your company. Do you find joy, Christian, in refreshment in the fellowship of the saints? Many of us do not. We find joy and refreshment in fellowship around all sorts of other things. Baseball or hockey or horse racing or whatever else you might, you know, the horseshoes. All kinds of things we do here and say, oh, good, there's, there's fellowship and unity around that, but you know, these Christians kind of bother me. You know, they're kind of fuddy-duddy, or, or they're holier than thou, or they're not, or this or that. We have our reasons to, we, we have issues with fellowship and joy in the Spirit as we fellowship one with another. But again, this is something we need to practice and focus toward. To love the fellowship of the saints. Oftentimes, if we find that we don't enjoy the fellowship of Christians, it's not always the other's fault. We think that way. Say, ah, he's kind of a jerk, or he's selfish, or he does this or that. But if we just turn that right back around on ourselves, we find, oh, and I do just the same thing. I have just the same hardness of heart as I come in here. And that breaks down the fellowship and the unity we have in the body as well. Christians, we're going to be in fellowship for eternity together. We can start on it now. Get working on it now. Get practiced at it now and find that refreshment and joy that's in Christian fellowship. If you don't find that joy in Christian fellowship... Repent. Seek it. Seek that God would grant you that joy and refreshment in Christian fellowship, even more than in other respects, you know, family fellowship or, or fellowship in the neighborhood or fellowship around different things that we can enjoy very easily. The neighborhood cookout's easy, right? Because you get to, like, leave them off and go back into your sealed home. Say, okay, good. We only saw them for an hour. That's fine. But Christian fellowship's more involved than that. Week by week we get together. Throughout the weeks we get together, we need to learn to love one another and rejoice in that fellowship for it's God's gift to us. Part of the unity of the church and part of the gift of the God of peace to his church. So the plan then is to go to Jerusalem, go to, go to Rome, and then off to Spain as he goes. And he says all this according to God's will. 
so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Again, we talked last week. Paul made his plans. Uh, that's, that's it. That's our, the proverb says that. We devise our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. And the Lord directed Paul's steps into contention, into violence, into problems. It didn't go how he thought it was going to go. He got to Jerusalem, and he got to Rome, but something happened in between there that made it different than the plan that he had, which is the contention of the Jews, the attacks of the unbelievers, just like he anticipated and sought the prayer for. These Jewish contentions, these unbelievers, and I think that's those who, when they've kind of come up around the things of God and rejected them, can be particularly violent in their opposition to the gospel. And so it was in that generation with Paul. His plans were derailed by the unbelief of God's people, the Jews, in Jerusalem. Paul needed to learn, just like we need to learn to have our plans to make our plans. You can see Paul's plans, but to have them with open hands. We don't know what the Lord will do. We'll do this, as we read in James, if the Lord wills it. We'll go to this city or that city and make money for a year and so on. If the Lord wills it. God called us to make plans, to be like Him, right, in planning. Yet at the same time, not to be Him, we are just creatures. But to depend on Him, to look for His will, and to receive it when it comes, even if it doesn't seem like what we wanted. How often is that the case? That God put something in our lives that we didn't think we wanted. And sometimes, in God's grace, we find out in time that, oh, that's exactly what I needed, even though I didn't want it. So sometimes, in God's grace and mystery, we don't find out why things come into our lives. We don't know. But we have to, in all these things, trust the Lord. We make our plan. He disposes of us. He leads us. And we trust Him in those things. So we make plans, and God disposes. So therefore, Christians, make your plans. Make them big plans, particularly around what we're talking about here. Around the gospel, around the support of the work of the ministry. Plan big. Dream huge. But have it all with open hands. Have it all with open hands, according to the will of the Lord. So, by way of conclusion, Paul seeks prayer. He asks the Romans to pray for him, the Roman Christians. He beseeches them on behalf of and on the basis of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God eternal. He seeks their prayers that that God would bless his ministry, that God would bless the proclamation and the work of the gospel. Not his personal growth, not his personal enrichment, but the work of the gospel, the ministry of Jesus Christ among the nations. He also seeks their God's protection and God's, God's will and his planning, all by the prayers here of the Romans. So Christians, your prayers are important. Your prayers are powerful because God has made them powerful. James tells us that the, the effectual, uh, the, the fervent prayer of a godly man is effectual. God uses your prayers. So pray. Pray for the success of the gospel, for the work of the ministry, for the protection of your minister, of all the ministers of the word, of the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ that God would bless our plans and move us forward according to His will. We're in a world of contention, of striving, and of violence. The world, the flesh, and the devil will not suffer Christ to be Lord. But guess what? Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Whether they suffer it or not. 
And we should know that as Christians. And we should pray that way as Christians. And we should live that way and plan that way and seek his protection that way as Christians. The gospel of Christ is the message of the God of peace. The good news of Jesus, that he came and died for sinners who were his enemies, to make them into his friends, to serve him with joy, even in a world of contention, is the gift of God, the God of peace. Jesus Christ is called the Prince of Peace. He's the one. He is our champion. He is our shalom. He is our wholeness and our peace. And therefore, God, Paul ends this section of the epistle, which effectively is the end of the epistle, except for some housekeeping here in chapter 16. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen.